Praise be to God. As we gather here going into Christmas, maybe some of you are still on your phones right now, Black Friday shopping, Cyber Monday's begun, I don't know, catching up on a football game that your family didn't let you watch. Bring it in. Lots going on and a lot has already been done. As you heard, we had Operation Christmas Child, we had something like 75 boxes gathered here and like 70,000 sent out and those boxes got sent out and Greg was a huge part of that every year with all the administrative, logistics, coordinating, shows up with boxes, kids run home with boxes, they come in and, and they leave. And it's one of those reminders of the global touch those boxes have a chance to get in the hands of kids and then it starts the gospel conversation. And it starts that relationship. And as you look out in our community with Tree of Life and Impact Boxing, which I'm sure many of you are signed up already to maybe get trained in in how to lead students in boxing, maybe not, that's your thing. But you could pray for them and you can give to them. And so there's different ways. And with Street Vision, it's been a blessing to go out over the years and just when you read Romans 12, we'll get to it next year. We're in Romans 8 today, but it talks about thinking of others as more important than yourselves. And that wrecked me as a high school student because right next to it was Echo. And there's a lot of homeless people that weren't always smelling fresh and clean, didn't always look like, hey, I'm going to hang out with you on a Friday night at In-N-Out. But to really hang out with them and think about, man, they have needs that are way more important than my new surfboard or what I'm doing on the weekend with my friends. And to go, wow, that's a whole different paradigm. Paul, I don't like reading anything you wrote anymore in scripture. You don't, you're not nice to me. And, but yet you go and serve them and you're like, oh, this is what it's about. And so we wanted to highlight some key ministries, partners that we're supporting, not only with our prayers, which is what we all need and must be doing, but also financially. And so thinking about what Paul tells us in, in Timothy, that we're supposed to be rich in good deeds, not just have a fat savings account, but use some of that to help build the kingdom. And it's amazing seeing churches like Maverick and God provide a spot for them and the, the moment we got to help them and, and what we could do, we were able to do. And as we go into to Christmas, there's a lot of, of joy to be had, a lot of things that we, we sing about. And, and it's interesting because I get to lead as the lead pastor and, and looking at the gifts God's given me, it's like, wow, you put that in there and, and I'm not worthy of it. Like Brandon Hall is not, I didn't do anything to deserve this and you gave me this just amazing inability to, to have like emotions other than positive. Like everything is just positive and we'll figure it out. We'll just try harder, work harder and we'll, there's always joy. And so Christmas was always a season of joy and, until I didn't get the go-kart that I thought I was getting. Instead, I got a BB gun. That Christmas, I didn't initially have joy until I realized what the BB gun was actually a pellet gun that was powerful enough to drop crows. And I was like, okay, now I'm having some joy. It just was a little deferred. And, and then it was like, all right, we can, we can make this happen. There's some fun to be had here. But have you ever noticed at Christmas when we sing songs about merry gentlemen where nothing can dismay them? I've never met those gentlemen before. But yet we sing about them, that there's nothing that dismayes them. As we've gone through Romans 6, 7, and 8, and we come to the end of Romans 8 here, and we talked about last week, Christmas is a challenging season. And Thanksgiving starts with being thankful. And then you read Paul, and he's so gentle and kind, and he tells you to be thankful in all circumstances. And it's easy to read that and close it like a Reader's Digest little, you know, 
quip of, of fun and, and, and holiday cheer, but really be thankful when your car breaks down. Be thankful when your spouse or child dies. Be thankful when you're, you lose a job. Be, be thankful when you're divorced. Like, Paul, really? Like, I don't know if you've been divorced, Paul, because this is not something to be thankful for. And you said all. I don't like that word. And it's okay to sit here in those emotions. That's why we're here. Because maybe this past week wasn't all that joyful. And maybe there was things that dismayed you. Probably. And as we struggle, we feel this trouble. And there's an awful lot of people through Christmas, it's a tough time. Because the culture says you should be happy. Just go buy the next thing. You got Cyber Monday. Don't worry. You missed Black Friday. We got you on Monday. Just get the next deal. You should have fun. It's Christmas. Just wait for the fudge to kick in. There's a ton of sugar. It's going to be great. And then the crash hits. But there's a lot of people suffering. This is the first Christmas, maybe, without a loved one. Or maybe you're facing a job change or loss, or relationships are tense, and you're like, man, just fix it. It'll be easier. And everyone else seems like things are going great, but I'm not merry. But what basis do we really have for joy that Christmas gives us? And the answer is, if Christmas really happened, if God really did at Christmas break through the broken world to come with his healing power because he stripped off his glory and took the form of a baby, then we have this solid basis for joy. We have this solid truth. We have this reality, even in the deepest grief, that we can feel these three things. First, our bad things will turn out for good. Our bad things will turn out for good. I'm always, again, the positive, the, the, the vision, and the, hey, it's gonna all, we're just gonna fit, God's got it, it's in his control, everything's gonna work out for good. And I love reading that, 828. It's, it's a great verse, just as your pastor, be careful when you share that verse. Like, right when your kid falls down, hey, guess what, I know your face is all scraped up, God works all things for the good. It's great, I'm glad you, you broke your arm, you can't play this football season, guess what? God works all things together for the good. As the doctor reveals the diagnosis, you have cancer, you got three weeks. God works all things together. It's awesome. You got cancer, you're gonna die in three weeks. Everything's good. The timing of that, but it's the truth. And it's amazing. Because I had a week and I've had a month. My truck's still not fixed from a collision. We're camping and the water heater breaks and all of our water leaks out, which is awesome because camping, dry camping, it's awesome to not have water. And then pulling in, the tire pops on the trailer. It's like, oh, man, thanks neighbor for telling me what RV really stands for. Ruined vacation. This is wonderful. <laughs> and we have a, have a new infant with us and so we click on the heater because it's our first cold week. And so our house heater decides to also not work. And so it's like, all right, bad things are going to turn out for good. Romans 8, 28. How's about the bad part being done and the good part beginning? Like, it's Christmas, Thanksgiving's over, where's the good, Lord? And, and those are silly things. Like, let's acknowledge those are super simple things that this week will probably be resolved. And many of you, we, we walk in with heavy things that don't just get resolved with the $80 part to have a pressure sensor in your heater. Like, they're big relational things. We need God to come. And our good things can never be taken away. How many of you have had good things taken away? The, the promise we have at Christmas, our good things can never be taken away. And the best part of all 
is all the rust destroying things and things failing and breaking, our best is yet to come. When we're heavenly focused, it allows us to endure the hard stuff and it allows us to leave the good stuff that heaven off, that the earth offers, but heaven promises better. So first, our bad things will turn out for good. Think about Christmas. I love thinking about the real Christmas, the true Christmas. It was horrible. It was uncomfortable. It was cold. And there's a little joke about uh, on social media where Mary is on the donkey and Joseph's like, I know, okay, I should have made reservations months ago. And she's like, no, it's fine. It's fine. I forgive you. Everything's fine. And it's just silent. It's the first silent night, right? And when you think about Christmas, Jesus was born into poverty. He's born in danger. His family has to flee to Egypt to escape slaughter. There's no room for him at the end. Out of Jesus' poverty comes the greatest spiritual riches. Out of Jesus' weakness comes the most incredible power and strength. Out of his isolation and rejection, people are brought together and united in the deepest loving unity possible. In other words, out of terrible things, through terrible things, because of terrible things, we see the promise of Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good in the lives of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things, bad and good, small, little, big moments and small moments are all working together for the good. Some may know and, and some may maybe not be familiar with Joseph, but it's one of my favorite stories to, to understand this verse. A quick recap. His youngest brother had these dreams that God gave him of him ruling over his family and his brothers, which that goes over well when you're the youngest, the one that your dad loves and gives you fancy coat of many colors, and you tell your older siblings, hey, you're all going to bow down and worship me. It works great. I don't know if you have kids in your house, but they, it just serving one another is super easy so they loved it they hated the idea they hated him for the idea coming out of his mouth and he he was a little punk so he bragged about it a little too much and so they jumped him and were going to kill him and his older brother was like hey i have college and i really want a new chariot so let's not kill him guys let's put him in a pit i'll rest in his mind he's thinking i'll rescue him later when no one's looking and everyone passes out of exhaustion he goes back and finds that his brother's already sold him into slavery, ends up wrongfully accused in prison, helps some guys get out of prison, they forget about him, so he goes through suffering, misery, it's a, it's a mess. That all happened, though, in this place called Dothan in, in Genesis. The first thing that happens in Dothan is Joseph is thrown into a pit by his brothers. He's going to be sold into slavery, and he has a life of absolute misery ahead of him. And he prays to God. He cries out, oh God, get me out of this. Don't let me be sold into slavery. And guess what God says? That. He, silence. Don't let me be sold into slavery. And God responds with silence. And he's sold into slavery. And he has a horrible, miserable life for years and years and years. Then, many centuries later, the second thing that happens in Dothan, Elisha, Elisha's in Dothan, and Elisha was the second prophet after Elijah. God was super kind to us and had the words, their names very different. So Elijah came first, took away in a chariot and left his cloak. Elisha, Sha grabs it and he slaps off the cloak and the water parts. And then he's the new prophet that takes over for Elijah. So Elisha 
is in Dothan, and now it's a city, and it's surrounded by an enemy, and he's afraid, and everyone's afraid they're going to be destroyed. So Elisha cries out to God and says, Lord, save us, save us, we're going to die. And this time God says, hey, that chariot of fire thing wasn't just for Elijah, and the chariots of fire come down and destroy the invading army, and everyone is saved. If you know Joseph, so I just recapped a little bit, he, if he hadn't been sold into slavery, if he hadn't gone through those years of misery, not only would hundreds of thousands of people die of famine, because through all the tr- strife and struggle and pain, fulfilled what God promised. You're going to be leading people. And you're going to be so wise because you're so humbled that you care less about yourself and you care more about people that you're going to see this vision and this dream and you're going to trust me to give you the wisdom to interpret it. Then you're going to store up all this grain for the famine when you have plenty and save not only hundreds of thousands, but his own family that would have been destroyed because of their own sin. And so from the story, we know how it works. All things, the hard things, the small things, the big things, we're working together to fulfill the God thing, God's plan, his purpose. What that means is God was just as active in Joseph's life as he was in Elisha's. Even though Joseph's, it was a lot more behind the scenes and it was a lot more delayed. Elisha's was, get me out of here, Lord, we're all going to die. And God says, yeah, you're all going to die unless I do get you out of here. So I'll get you out of here. No matter how much bad stuff's happening inside of you, no matter how much bad stuff's happening outside of you, you can be assured we have this absolute promise that God's in control and he's working it all out for his glory and our good. And this isn't just saying behind every cloud there's a silver lining, it's just about your perspective. This is saying that there's God's purpose and he allows horrible, tragic, evil things to occur. Just this last week when we're looking at the Middle East, going, ah, oh, why, why would God allow this horrible thing? 200 Muslims in Gaza come to know the Lord because Jesus revealed himself in dreams. And that's what God's doing. God's saving. And so it puts us back on our knees and pray. Instead of saying, why did you? Say, who are you going to save through this? What purpose are you going to accomplish? What glory are you going to get? And good are you going to bring that are called according to your purpose? Save more. Save more because every day the Lord waits, more are saved. And I'm sure glad Jesus didn't come back when people talked about it in the early 80s or 70s because I wouldn't have been saved. I wouldn't be here. Romans 8, 28, out of all this bad, he's going to bring about something good. He's going to bring glory and joy into the world that wouldn't have been there. And we see when Jesus rolls up to the tomb where Lazarus was laid, Jesus is not chuckling. He's not laughing. He doesn't come in with a parade and fireworks. And you guys are all losers. You're crying. You have no clue what I'm about to do. All right, line up here all, you know, and have a little intro band. And he's not doing all that. He's weeping with those who are weeping. He's mourning with those who are mourning. He's actually angry. He's bellowing with anger that death took his friend, that death took a loved one. And he joins in against the evil. He's mad, the evil in and of itself that separates. There's no silver lining here. It's terrible, and Jesus hates it. And he's weeping, he's angry. And Romans 8, 28 says that the way God defeats those really truly evil things altogether, God is overruling, reshaping, mastering everything so that he defeats it all. The question is, how? 
There's one way in which God does this, which is easy to grasp, and there's another way that's a little more challenging. The one that's easy to grasp is actually in verse 28. He says, he works all things for good. In verse 29, he says, his whole plan for us is to conform us to the likeness of his son. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. You may think your biggest problem is your circumstances. My biggest problem is my job, or this opportunity that needs to fall into place, or my health, or my circumstances, or my, my spouse needs to fix this, or he needs to change that, or my kids, if they would just pick up after themselves, if they just do this, is a real problem. But the reality is, it's your character. Your character has the potential to destroy you. It's your character. It's foolishness. It's pride. It's selfishness. It's denial about your sin, about your flaws, about your hardness of heart. Of all the false delusions that you really can, can handle, life is the lie that you can handle life without God. All those things, all those mistakes, those flaws, the character flaws that are the things that really can knock us out. Almost all of us who've been alive more than 10, 20 years no offense, students, you're on your way. You'll, you'll get some stuff. You'll get some hurt. Your stub toes, nothing. Just saying. Those of us that have been alive longer, the real hurts, the real pains, they're bad and they still hurt. The scars, right? They're still there. And yet the insight or the character or the strength we've gotten from it, we wouldn't trade for anything. And that's just a hint of what we're being told here. All kinds of bad things are going to happen to you. And the purpose of that is to conform you to the likeness of his son. And you say, okay, is that it? Because there's another sense in which God's obviously working all things together for the good that will always escape us. We can't quite grasp that. And we need to understand that if we're going to understand how we endure the troubles in our life. And we see it's the primary place here where we see In a minute, it's this, this foreknowledge that helps us. But for a second, I want to share, if, if I were at the foot of the cross, we're not going to put you there, but if I were there thinking about Christmas, I always go to the cross, and it's like everyone knows, and, and they really got to see, and especially the last, I mean, those that were at the tomb and saw Lazarus walk out, smelly, stinky, being in there for three days, it's like, whoa, hold on. This guy has the power to walk on water, feed 5,000, give sight to the blind, raise Lazarus, and now he's nailed to a cross. Like the flogging's enough to kill men, and most died through the flogging, and now he's nailed to a tree. There's no hope for him. There's no future. It's all over. And my faith would have been shaken if not destroyed, walking away, going, What's, what are we going to do? Because now they're going to come for me next, because that's what the Romans did. They didn't just cut the head off the snake. They went after everyone and anything that was connected to the uprising. We all have facts. And staying at the foot of the cross, the facts that they had, that, that I have, it's like, man, I'd be shaken. But the good reality, the promise we have is that our bad things will turn out for good. And that when Jesus was separated from God, he said, why have you forsaken me? Why did God turn his back on Jesus so that we would never feel that separation? And we would have this 
promise that secondly, our good things can never be taken away, that all the bad that we might do or have done to us will turn out for good. Secondly, our good things can never be taken away. The trajectory of human religion always says, I go to God. I have to ascend through moral effort. We just sung a song about it. No, God has to come to us because God looks at us and says, there's no amount of moral effort, transformation, consciousness, or whatever perspective you want to have. You can't live the life you ought to live and expect God to be impressed by you or bless you. At Christmas, God is saying, you're never going to, you're never going to measure up. You're never going to get up to me. There's no ladder that you can purchase that can extend high enough. I have to come down to you. You're just never going to make it across the chasm. You're never going to make it up to me. William Billings says, Seek not in courts or palaces, nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable. See your God extended on the straw. God took off the glory and took on the form of an infant and was extended on the straw. Why does God come not as a general and the head of an army or a king to impress and, and to, to show his power? He's not a God who, who helps those who help themselves. He comes for people who are weak, who can't do what they need to, that have to turn to him. That's why John the Baptist said, whoa, 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 time out. May I decrease that you might increase. I need to stop talking about me and my preparation because I've prepared enough because he's here. It's now all about Jesus. It was always all about Jesus, but I have to make sure there's no confusion. And this love that God gives beyond condition, it's a love beyond degree. And that's what this passage is all about. He foreknows, meaning before time he knew you, which means not just he knew things about you. And when Jesus prays in John 17, where we get our mission statement, to know God is eternal life, that means knowing him relationally, personally, not just things about him, not that he's all powerful and all present, but that he's your savior, that what he did on the cross for you is what makes you good, not what you do for him. And we keep in mind that this knowing in the Bible is a relational word. Therefore, when it says that God foreknows us, what it's really saying is he foreloves us. He puts his love on us before we do anything in his direction, before we do anything of worth or love. And we see this perfect image of the prodigal son where the father gives his youngest son a portion of his inheritance and he squanders it. And realizes, man, I'm broke, I'm homeless, I'm destitute, I'm hungry. My dad's servants have it way better. I'll go be a hired hand for my dad. And his dad's not arms folded, tapping his foot, just shaking his head, waiting for him to, to come like a tail between his legs, dog that just got out and come back and realize I'm going to get beat, whooped, and I probably will be lucky not to get killed. But the dad runs to his son, sees him a long way off, which means he's actively waiting, looking. And the moment he glimpses, he runs and showers him with love and doesn't wait for this response. So we see that, that God's love is unconditional. So we get to the point where maybe you're saying, okay, that's great. God loves me. It's a great gift. I love looking at that. But it sure talks a little bit about this whole free will and human responsibility. So how does that, how does that play out? Because it talks about the elect and, 
And it talks about this foreknow and predestined and all this stuff. And verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? We talked about that last week. He's, he's pleading our case for us. So what happens to free will and what happens to personal responsibility? If Jesus is just pleading our case for us, then what do we have to do? And this is a Western issue. It bothers us. It's never really bothered. It didn't. Paul wrote it out. He's like, here's where it is. Never forget sitting in, in, in class, pastoral studies degree, and I sat under my mentor and my professor, and, and he's a staunch Calvinist, and we've gone back and forth on that. And, and he said, hey, for the first time, I've, I've taught Romans for 27 years, and this year's the first time I'm going to teach Romans, not as a Calvinist, but as a follower of Christ. And it was amazing, because here's this old dude, who, like, old people don't change. Apparently, God, God still has power to change old, old people's minds. And it was like, oh, this is so wonderful, because the biggest problem with, with Calvinism is, is Calvin didn't really teach it to begin with. And it's this whole old debate of people that followed Calvin as a teacher and people that followed Arminius as a teacher. And they, they thought too much of men and, and too little of God and too little of men and just went back and forth. And it was really simply the problem is, they said that God only died, Jesus only died for certain people that are called the elect, which means that God's sending people to heaven and God's sending people to hell. The problem is, interestingly, theology goes too far, and then science, if you Google it, I was amazed. Like, this isn't a new thing. Back in the early 2000s, in New York Times, there was a big article called Free Will. Now you have it, now you don't. And just a couple weeks ago, in the middle of October, it continued this debate where they, they looked at science and, and, and culture and, and a Stanford neuro, neurobiologist Robert Sapolsky believes humans have no free will. He studied baboons in Africa and human behavior for decades. He's concluded that neurochemically influences your, determines human behavior. Your, 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 your genes and your personality, you're predisposed to choose, choose certain things, therefore you have no free will. It always goes so far. Either you have free will or you don't. But scripture, when you read all of God's word, you realize what J.I. Packer puts in a very helpful way. It's, it's not an either or. It's a both and. And he says this. In his book on evangelism and the sovereignty of God, he says the relationship of our free will and responsibility and God's sovereignty and control of all things is an antinomy. Antinomy. An antinomy, he defines, is not a contradiction, but an apparent contradiction. That's a lot easier to say. So we're just going to say that. It's an apparent a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. The example he uses is light. We know light sometimes behaves as waves, sometimes as particles, sometimes it acts as if it doesn't consist of matter, and sometimes it acts as if it does. We don't know how that could be. It shouldn't be that way, but it is. We don't know how that works, but we know it does work that way, so we work with it. Otherwise, you're not going to know how to handle light. So it's obviously not a real contradiction, it's just an apparent contradiction. 
and we don't have the knowledge to figure it out. And it's the same thing with God's sovereignty. Somehow, he can work your bad, your big, your small, your good. He can figure it all out and make it all fit into his plan. Satan's like, I'm gonna go mess with Job. God's like, all right, do it. And then he brings about God's perfect plan. Somehow, our responsibility, and we have a choice, but yet God knows, and it's all fitting in, and he doesn't do it despite our choices, but through them. So it, pu it puts us in a place where people might say, well, I can be passive. God's interceding for me. No, he's interceding for you, so get to work. You know him. Now grow in that relationship so you can go serve. It's through your choices. The second best example I can give you to not be passive and not be so gripped with anxiety or fear over your decision of, oh my goodness, is it this college or this college? What do I choose? What if I'm outside of God's will? Ah, well, Romans 8.28, he's got it all figured out. He's going to work it all together for good. And we see in Acts 27, this is my favorite example of, of another story where Paul is on a boat with sailors and soldiers in this terrible storm. In the midst of the storm, everyone's scared. The sailors and soldiers are super afraid they're going to die. And so God sends an angel to Paul and says, look, tonight the ship's going to be wrecked, but nobody's going to die. You're just going to have a shipwreck. Like, no big deal. So Paul's like, oh, phew. So he tells everyone, look, the ship's going down, but no one's going to die. He truly believed that. Because if he didn't believe it, and it was wrong, then they would kill him. So he knew it was true as the word of God. So he says, this is what's going to happen. In verse 31 of Acts 27, the storm continues and the sailors talk amongst themselves. And they're like, dude, this is not going to go well for us. We're sailors. We know where the lifeboats are. So they try and sneak off the ship. And Paul catches them. And he says, hey, what are you doing? Stop. And he yells at the soldiers, soldiers, stop the sailors. If they leave the boat, then we're all going to die because I'm a prisoner and you're soldiers. We have no experience sailing this ship. We're going to die. And God said we're not going to die. So sailors, stay on the ship. Soldiers, stop them. And I think this is actually the beginning of the great army-navy rivalry right here <laughs> in Acts 27. When you look at this, it's like, wait a minute, Paul. You could be passive. God said no one's going to die. Why do you care if the sailors get off the boat? Because human responsibility. God doesn't say, okay, now you can be idiots and do stupid things because I'm sovereign. God says, I've given you wisdom. And Paul's saying, look, I really believe that no one's life is going to be lost. And the way that's going to happen is if the smart people who know how to sail this boat, the sailors, stay on the ship. If that's it, and that's the plan of God, we know that it's up to us to realize our decisions have consequences. And if we believe it's fixed despite our choices, so our choices don't matter, Paul has a biblical understanding of this and says, no, your choices do matter. You can't be paralyzed in fear and you can't be just passive. We need to do things the way they ought to be done. We need to use our wisdom. We need to understand that our choices don't determine the future. He's not paralyzed going, man, if we do this, it could mess things up. But he's not passive either. He's saying, look, despite our choices, 
If you believe everything is fixed despite our choices, you'll be passive. If you believe our choices actually determine the future, then you'll be paralyzed, but Paul's neither. It's this old illustration that's super helpful. Think about it as a, as a door. This relationship with God is a door. And you're standing at the door. As you come up to the door, over the door, it says, Matthew 10, 32, Whosoever will confess me before men, I will confess before my Father. So Paul's saying, look, the relationship of salvation is like a door. You're at the door, and above it it says, Whoever confesses me before men, I'll confess before my Father. And you feel God pushing you closer to the door and you feel his presence and you start moving closer and you start hearing good things about God. You start hearing how much he loves you and he sacrificed to save you. And as you get up against the door, it's now uncomfortable. And as you come into a relationship with God, as you're pushed up against the door and you feel like there's nothing really I have left to do except open the door and walk through it because I'm claustrophobic and I'm just going to walk in. And as you walk through the door and you begin the relationship with God, and you make that decision, you have things to do. You can't be passive, but when you actually do them, and you say, Lord, accept me because of what Jesus did on the cross, and you believe, and you turn from your sin, you turn to Jesus and realize, I have a new life, I can see things, and you turn around, you look at the door you just walked through, above it says John fifteen sixteen, you have not chosen me, I have chosen you. And you realize, oh, it's both. God planned it. God orchestrated each one of our decisions, each one of our steps in a way. When we look back, there's no way we could have been like, hey, you know what? 2023, we should go to Life Community Church. But not until that, like, we're going to wait. But God ordained and, and, and orchestrated and moved and allowed all these different steps for us to be here today. But yet you had human responsibility over each one of your decisions, bad and good. And yet both can exist. And we see John 16, 4, 4. No man can come to me except the Father draw him. When we look back, we go, oh. And that humbles us. And to understand that we were pushed into that door and then we opened it and believed and received that gift of salvation. It's a both and. And I love J.I. Packer's illustration of light because it helps us understand as best we can because he's still sovereign and somehow he's orchestrated it, planned it, knows us and, and loved us before we did anything because he loves us because he loves us. Everyone who's actually moved through that door at some point realizes in spite of all the work they did, all the commitments, all the sweat, tears, when they look back, they realize that the reason I'm a Christian is not because I'm more spiritual. When people are always tell me, oh, I'm not religious, like neither am I. I would never be religious. I would be the most irreligious person ever, except God saved me and showed me this is what the purpose of life really is. To be loved and to love like I love you. Oh, okay. That's way better. That's way more fulfilling than anything the world could offer me. But I'm not a rule follower. So religion would never work for me. Because all I would do is keep breaking the rules. And Jesus says, yeah, I know. And I broke that to set you free. It's not because I'm humbler than other people. Not because I'm more zealous for truth than other people. It's simply because God kept pushing and pressing me through the door. And we use that phrase all the time. Well, God opened the door. Yeah, you just had to op twist the knob and walk through. He already opened the door. He pushed you into the door. He did all the work. He drew you. He pushed you in. And all you had to do was acknowledge it. And that's what makes me a Christian because of the work Jesus did. 
because of him drawing, because of him pushing, because of him revealing, not because I'm smarter or better or I was more repentant, but because it's totally free, absolutely free, and it's sovereign. What does that mean? It means that he loves me because he loves me. There's nothing I could do to change that or earn that. So why don't we just accept the free gift, as you guys are going to do in a few weeks. Maybe some of you will reject the gift. I've never met a person yet. I don't, that's weird. But we always do it. Every time there's a gift, even if we don't like it, we open it and we're like, oh, great. Except with Jesus. We're like, yeah, nope, you stay over there. Like, I don't, I, I know what that costs. I'm not going to touch it. I'm not going to open it because then I'll be responsible to use it and believe it and accept it. And the beautiful gift is that God is not a boss. He's a dad. He's a father. Every time I talk about kind of leadership and, and the difference between a boss and employees and when they mess up, the, the bosses know, right? It's like, how quick can I get rid of this person and replace them? This is the second time they did the thing I told them not to do. The problem is, as a dad, there's no return policy on your kids. Like, I've, I've looked, there's not. You're stuck with them. Even the youngest one, you know, sometimes it's like, ah, I don't know how this is working out. No, you're, and as a dad, there's, it's different. As a dad, you look at it and you realize these problems are going to be so detrimental if it's not addressed. And so it, it stirs your love and it, and it draws you closer and then you have to figure it out. Okay, how are we going to process? How are we going to grow through this? How are we going to deal with this? And, and as a dad, you want to fix it all fast. Like go into boss mode. Hey, here's, you know, we're going to do a, a quarterly review. We're going to do a weekly review. We're going to do a daily review. Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? And it's so helpful to just, hey, it's relationship. It's one thing. There might be 10 things you want to change. Let's focus on the big three and focus on the big one, one at a time. And we see that here. The really great thing is that Jesus is our justification. Paul talks about this as the past tense. You're adopted into the family, into this relationship. You're already good. And so we see that this absolute sovereign God, who's in control of the universe and galaxies, loves you with this unconditional intensity. And it says, he also justified and he also glorified. He's talking as if it's already been done. And we're still working towards it. So our best is yet to come. And as we close, this is key. Because God will never forsake us because he forsook Jesus on the cross. Philippians 2 says he emptied himself of glory. And Isaiah 53 says he had no beauty by which we should desire him. He was absolutely lost his glory, became pitiful, became small, shriveled, became inconsequential. He lost his glory so we could have it. So confidently and certainly. So surely that Paul talks about it in the past tense. Paul is saying only glory makes it possible and realistic to face the bad that we experience in this life. When we're focused on eternity and the glory that's yet to be revealed and received, and he says in, in verse 18, and in 2 Corinthians 4, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. He's saying that the future glory outweighs anything good we have in this life. And so in this life, we have the good, and we think it's good, and we put our trust in the good things, and we, we think it's real. 
But this word glory means weight or solid. It actually, if you think about this, we've been talking about this all through this series in Romans. It's the weight of your identity. It's the weight of your reality. Maybe some of you are so career focused and you're leading an organization or leading a, a business and yet you want to grow it and you're so fixated on that and that that's, consumes a large part of who you are. And then you have family and you don't want your family to be failures so you got to figure out what your wife needs and what your kids needs and, and maybe your, your wife and you're like, what does my husband need? What do my kids need? And, and, and you're just consumed by this and, and the weight of that. And if it's your career or it's your house or if it's your family... If you build your identity on that, and your whole identity is on that, slowly, kinetic sand's a perfect illustration for this. Slowly, but certainly, it, it corrodes. It can't, it can't, it's not meant to. It's, that's not the purpose. Your career and your family were never meant to satisfy you. In Black Friday, Cyber Monday, all that is is this. Hey, get that little thing, it'll make you feel better. And it just doesn't quite work. It just doesn't quite last. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, I was made nothing for you. I'm the cornerstone the builders rejected. I'm your solid foundation. I'm your mighty fortress. I'm your rock. When you read the Old Testament, you read it and there's all these visual illustrations. It's weird. You read the New and it's all these visual illustrations where Jesus actually did what he said he would do and fulfilled over 350 prophecies, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead, and says, hey, do you want to follow me? Just sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Not going to do it, Jesus. Everything I have is way better. Oh, it's so good. Everything I have. Moth and rust do destroy when you're camping at Port Slow and all your water goes into the ocean. It's the first time I cried over that scripture. Dang it, Ross, Rust actually destroyed something. 37 years ahead to me to figure that out. Rusty screwdrivers, rusty wrenches, still works. And Jesus said, no, trust me. What heaven and the glory is to be revealed, and the promise I want to leave you with is this. For God gives us everything we need. And the hope and the reality of your identity is in him. If you walk through that door and you're saved, you're confident, you're assured. That's what Christmas is about. The baby on the manger, extended on the straw, came to save you and set you free and give you the hope and the promise eternally that makes the bad things in this life tolerable and the good things in this life leavable. When your hope is in Christ, and you realize God's given you everything you need, the best things in this life are so leavable because it's better. When you realize if you don't have it, you don't need it. And this is mainly for students. If you don't get something this Christmas, you probably didn't need it, okay? It's a tip. It might be oversimplified, but I hopefully when you leave, it's this momentarily affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. As we put off what we think we need, and we really cling to what we actually need in Jesus. And we have our identity in him. That's why it says in verse 34, who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In verse 37, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
And then he says, nor height, nor depth, nor angels, rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor AI, nor anything, nor you. We're the created things. It says, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. There's nothing you or I could do. You might say, okay, that's great. God foreloved me, but you don't know how bad or how lost or how distracted I've no, there's nothing you could do that will be able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as we give you a minute now with the elements, I want to close in prayer and plead with you once more to walk through the door if you've yet to believe that because of what Jesus did, you're good. What Jesus did, you're saved. What Jesus paid for freed you to put your hope and have the assurance that you're good because of what he did for you. Believe and be saved. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved, Paul says in Romans 10. We'll get there next year. Come back. But believe now and be saved. And for those of us who are saved, repent and say, what, what thing did, did I trust in? What thing maybe got me down that's just can't quite satisfy? Seems like it for a short while, but after a little while, it realizes that's not what I was meant to put my, the weight of who I am on. It's on Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the promise that our bad things will turn out for good. Our truly good things will never be taken from us because you were separated from God. We will never be. As you promised, you'll never leave us or forsake us, which promises us that you'll come back and bring us to the truly best things that are yet to come. As we enjoy the good things now, we know that your glory and our glory that you're going to glorify us with and your presence will make the good things leavable and make the hard things bearable. We pray that your spirit will fill us up as we rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen.